This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people send you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Censored, a podcast about farcical book banning. I'm Aoife Vrtnach, historian and compulsive reader. It's been fun making a podcast on this subject during the US presidential election, when the censorship hashtag went batshit crazy. And yes, that is my serious historian assessment. Maybe the hashtag will go back to highlighting how governments ban books, plays or websites, rather than giving out about mild warnings on tweets. Anyway, I'll still be here pointing out the madnesses of censorship when all the fuss dies down. If you are able to support the podcast, you can find me on patreon.com slash censored pod. Thanks to my newest patron, Belinda Vigors. Sound out of you to sign up. The book I'm discussing this time is Portnoy's Complaint by Philip Roth. When it was published in 1969, it was hugely popular and quite controversial. The main character, Alexander Portnoy, is obsessed with sex. That's an inadequate way of describing it, to be honest. Every neurosis or emotional conflict he has is expressed through sex. It's a gloriously explicit book that is punchy, clever and fresh. When I read chapter two, called Whacking Off, I was delighted, disgusted and intrigued all at once. I may have sworn in appalled astonishment when he fucked raw liver. With a whole chapter devoted to masturbation, I was sure it was banned. But I cannot find it on the Irish list. It seems ridiculous that a censorship board that banned Jackie Collins would ignore this filthy book, but it did. I suppose its instant fame and acknowledged literary greatness saved it from the blacklist. The government had just relaxed the censorship laws in 1967 after public controversy over a book by John McGahran called The Dark. Banning a famous book, like Portnoy's Complaint, would draw unwelcome media attention to censorship all over again, and that was best avoided. So shame, a central theme of Portnoy's Complaint, meant that Roth's book could be imported into Ireland. But the story of Portnoy's Complaint in Australia is truly fascinating. Australia had a strict censorship system that looked more like Ireland than Britain or America. Roth's rude novel about compulsive wanking played a starring role in the collapse of that system in 1971, and that's what I'm going to explore in this episode. 
Unfortunately, years of Australian TV did not give me the skills and knowledge needed, so I've asked Patrick Mullins to be my guest. Patrick is an Australian academic and writer based in Canberra. He is the author of The Trials of Portnoy, a history of the publication of Portnoy's complaint in Australia and the bringing down of the censorship system. Hi, Patrick. Welcome to the podcast. G'day, Aoife. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. This is just going to be good fun. I loved your book. Really enjoyable. So easy to read. And even though I don't know a lot about Australian politics, I found all of the little vignettes of who everyone was very interesting. That's great. I'm really glad. We're all dirty down here in Australia and our politicians are the dirtiest of all of us. So excellent. I'm really glad to hear that. (laughs) I was very impressed that a politician's um, slogan for election was, let's keep the bastards clean. Keep the bastards honest. Yeah, yeah. Don't ship. <laughs> and what's more is the at one time the great censor of all. Keep the bastards honest. That was Mr. Chip, top bloke. <laughs> I'm so impressed that you can say bastards in your political discourse. <laughs> it's brilliant. <laughs> I think I, I think we've got far worse things we can say about in, in that are popularly accepted in Australia for things to say. Um, I think the be- one of the best lines I've ever heard for used by a politician uh, is conga line of suck holes. Um, used to describe, yeah, yeah. <laughs> People listening won't be able to see this, but Ethan's mouth just dropped right <laughs> open. That that was one of the greatest expressions I think I've heard. Um, but Paul Keating is the person to listen to if you ever need a bit of a bit of a lift uh, and to see some good polished politicians using some language in adventurous ways. It's extraordinary that a country with such a tolerance for what a lot of people would consider foul language in public life had this huge censorship architecture. Yeah, it, it's it's quite bizarre. Um, it kind of goes very counter to what Australians consider themselves to be. The stereotype of Australians is they're very laid back, they're larrikins, anti-authoritarian, um, and kind of easygoing. But really, uh, as the censorship system attests, we're a bunch of wowsers, prudes, we love government, we love the nanny state, uh, and we don't like rule breakers, and we don't like bad language, and we don't like talking about sex. Um, we, we're, we're terrible wowsers. We... Um, Ooh, it's like a nation full of altar boys. I mean, really, it's 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 terrible, terrible stuff. I did love the way throughout your book you kept using the word wowzers, and I had to go Google it because I had no idea what you were talking about. <laughs> uniquely Australian word, a uniquely Australian word for the killjoy at your party. Person who doesn't like language, doesn't like drinking, doesn't like anything. A wowzer. Brilliant. Well, if we were to be having a party over a port noise complaint, I don't think we could actually recommend any food or drink to go with it, which is what I normally do at the beginning of a podcast. I usually say, let's have a drink with the book. But if you could drink or eat while reading Portnoy's Complaint, I'd be really impressed. <laughs> you certainly would not be eating liver. I mean, that's the big thing. You just would not be eating liver of all the things to... <laughs> no. The early part of the book talks extensively about constipation as well, which would kind of put you off. <laughs> So yeah, I think we might have to skip accompanying drinks. But what is your favourite or sort of rudest, funniest part of the book for you? My my favourite passage in the book, um, it's not particularly dirty in and of itself, or it doesn't sound particularly dirty, or on the face of it, it's not particularly dirty. It comes early on when Portnoy's father invites over to the house um, his secretary, a woman named Anne. And Portnoy's family is, they're obviously Jews, uh, and Anne is a Gentile. And basically, 
Portnoy's father encourages her to eat this Jewish food, to eat this liver. When you read it, it just sounds kind of dirty, like just real dirty. Like he goes, okay, this is your real Jewish chopped liver, Anne. Have you ever had real Jewish chopped liver before? Well, my wife makes the real thing. You can bet your life on that. Here, you eat it with a piece of bread. This is real Jewish rye bread with seeds. That's it, Anne. You're doing very good. Ain't she doing good, Sophie, for her first time? That's it. Take a nice piece of real Jewish rye. Now take a big fork full of the real chopped Jewish liver and on and on right down to the jello. That's right, Anne. The jello is kosher too. Sure, of course, has to be. Oh no, oh no, oh no, no cream in your coffee, not after meat. Ha ha, hear what Anne wanted, Alex. Ugh. <laughs> yeah. Now I might I might be uh you know damaged and, and dirty minded, but I read that and I just think yeah. And Portnoy the whole time is imagining that his father is giving it to her. Um and it can be read as that dirty, dirty talk. Yeah, I mean, so much of the book, it's just all infused with sex, even if he isn't actually talking about it. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. But one of the parts that really made me laugh is uh, halfway through the book, and he's in the middle of a, uh, a threesome with his girlfriend, who he calls Monkey, which is a bit weird. I've I spent a long time going, that doesn't sound appropriate in any way. And uh, a woman that they pick up from the streets, a sex worker. And this is page 137. And I just think this is really, really funny. I can best describe the state I subsequently entered as one of unrelieved busyness. Boy, was I busy. I mean, there was just so much to do. You go here and I'll go there. Okay, now you go here and I'll go there. All right, now she goes down that way while I head up this way. And you sort of half turn around on this. And so it went, Doctor, until I came my third and final time. I just thought that was hilarious. (laughs) The rest of the chapter about that particular encounter is kind of quite emotionally complicated. But that was a rare moment of levity. Yeah, yeah. One of the things I think that is so great about this um, is that Roth is so attentive to the mechanics, like the logistics of where things go. You know, you're playing a game of Twister in in these kinds of things. And he's so attentive as to what happens, but he never loses sight of the fact that it's stupid. It's also weird. And it's just kind of a bit disgusting. Like he talks about, you know, whose soppy hole things go into. And you're just kind of cringing and just thinking, oh, my God, I don't want to eat anything. I don't want to. I need a bath, you know. I mean, it's not surprising it was controversial. There's a whole chapter about masturbation. There's eating liver in disgusting fashion and abusing liver in in imaginative fashions. And then you have, you know, threesomes and everything he can think of, really, he crams into it. But it wasn't banned anywhere, it seems, except Australia. At least it's not banned in Ireland. It's not banned in America or, or Britain. It was banned in South Africa. I know that for a little bit. It was banned in South Africa. But I don't know how long how long that ban lasted. But yes, it was banned in Australia. We, we, we would not have a bar of that book. But why is Australia so censorious at this time? What's the situation and how does the censorship system work? So the, the censorship system at this time in Australia, when, when Portnoy's complaint was published in 1969, was one of, of transition. Up until this point, Australia had had a really strict system of censorship that worked at both a state-based and a federal level. Um, the state governments had the powers to police material and to, to rip out material that had been published domestically here in Australia. The federal government had the power to stop stuff coming into Australia. So they could stop 
all the dirty books from the UK, London in particular being the, the dirty sewer of the English-speaking world. And so you had these two systems of censorship, but they were beginning to break down. The, the, the court system that, that protected the federal system of censorship um, had been challenged at quite a few turns, and domestically, activists had been really taking on the censorship system by clogging the courts with deliberate offences against the censorship acts. Moreover, the federal government um, kind of hegemony around censorship was beginning to split apart. Both major sides of politics in Australia, the Liberal Party and the Labor Party, had for a very long time since Federation been kind of at one. They had a unity ticket on censorship. They were very happy to enforce it. They didn't want Australia to be polluted by dirty books. And so there was this kind of consensus and it endured right throughout the 1950s and even into the mid-1960s, but it really started to break down there when the Labour Party of Gough Whitlam um, began to turn against censorship and started to promise that if they came to government, they would reform censorship principles in accordance with the belief that adults could read whatever they wanted. At the time, though, the Liberal Party was in government. It had been in government since 1949, um, and so by 1969, it was coming up to 20 years in office. It still had another couple of years to go. So we're at this point, this kind of this junction where things are breaking down, but for the moment, the ship is still holding true. So when Portnoy's complaint was published in America, the publisher sent it to the Australian government and said, we want to import this. What's the story? But it was banned at that point, isn't it? The national government says no, and then it doesn't get through. Yeah. So they sent through, they, the publisher from Britain sent through a copy of the book and said, we want to publish in April 1969. And the Australian federal government straight away said, no way, not, not in hell can freeze over before we allow that to happen. Um, and that, that ban was immediate. It's worth saying that a couple of the periodicals in which Roth had published extracts did get through to Australia beforehand. They weren't caught by the censors. But that overall ban on importing the book to Australia was maintained. Um, and it endured throughout several reviews throughout the course of 1969. Um, some of them were made at the urging of the publisher. Some of them were made for direct ministerial intervention. But they were nonetheless kept. The ban was maintained. The government just saw it as a book that was you know, blasphemous, that had instances of four-letter words, that it was all about sex, masturbation. It just could not be used. I mean, the summing up of it was Jewish lawyer with a chip on his shoulder talks about sex. I mean, greatest one-line fortune cookie kind of summation of, of a novel you could ever get. But, you know, that's how they saw it. And they didn't see it for the kind of tragic and comedic elements that could make it perhaps um, salutary or empathetic or identifying or anything like that. So it's banned by the national government and they try and appeal it and it fails. So what, what happens next? Where does it go after that? And why does it become such a big deal? Well, so the big thing that happened next was that censorship activists in Australia published a book called Australia's Censorship Crisis, which contained all these essays about censorship, but also extracts of various banned books. And a chapter from Portnoy's Complaint was included in the book. And that brought Portnoy's Complaint to the attention of the editors at Penguin Australia, um, so Penguin Australia obviously is a subsidiary of the British Penguin um, and in many ways is kind of the poor bastard child of them in some respects. Um, yeah, they were literally just a dumping ground for the British books that they couldn't sell overseas. Um, but in the 1960s, Penguin Australia had begun to set up and publish its own books and it was kind of really intent on contributing to culture and um, you know, changing things that it thought it could. 
it saw literary literature as having a particular power. Uh, so we're saying the staff leading this were idealistic and young and starry eyed. Um, so they saw a role for their publisher to do things and to change the world. Um, and they had that parallel with the UK and Lady Shatterley's Lover where Penguin Books had published a book taken on the censorship system and won. So that was one big thing in their mind when they came across Portnoy's complaint in this book, Australia's Censorship Crisis. They saw a book that overseas had been a bestseller, that had been a critical darling, that on one hand seemed to, you know, hit all the buttons that you'd want to for a censored book, but at the same time to also have quite a few interesting qualities that were distinct and that weren't really just dirt for dirt's sake, shall we say. Like one of the guys who I spoke to, um, Peter Froelich, who was the finance director of Penguin at this time, uh, and this point is crucial, is that his role, sorry, is crucial, um, said to me that, you know, at that time he was told when he was growing up that if you masturbated, then you'd go blind. Um, but he kind of said that there's this role here in, in reading Pep Portnoy's complaint that you could see that if you masturbate, you don't go blind. You know, and you can laugh at that. So you can get over the guilt and the shame. So um, Penguin had this idea that they could publish Portnoy's complaint. They could take on the censorship system. They would sell a ton of books. They would contribute to the literary culture um, and that they'd help bring Australia out of this kind of the doldrums, the conservative doldrums um, in which it had been for so long. So they negotiated with the publishers in the UK to get the rights for the book. Then they smuggled into Australia three copies of the book. And the, the smart kind of thing that they did was they said, okay, the federal government's got a ban. That's fine. We can get around that by bringing the book into Australia and printing it here. Under a uniform censorship agreement that had been struck between the federal government and the states, the states also had to ban and prosecute for any infringement of the ban any book that the federal government had already banned. So Portnoy's complaint being banned by the federal government was also banned by the state governments. And Penguin said, if we bring the book in here and get it through the feds, we evade them. They're done. They're out of the way. It's just the state governments we then need to worry about. And they could kind of sense that if they did things right, they might actually be able to throw censorship into the headlines and potentially exploit some gaps. You know, in Australia, it was possible at that time to publish a book in New South Wales, the most populous state in the country where Sydney is, um, but then have it legal in New South Wales, but banned in Queensland, you know, just a few miles over the border, you can get the book, but the other side, you can't, um, and vice versa. So they saw a potential to exploit and throw the system into confusion, kind of weaken it. So what they did was they brought the book in, they printed 75,000 copies and using Peter Froelich's expertise, that is Peter Froelich, the finance manager of Penguin, they had the book distributed everywhere across the country. So, you know, from Perth, to Sydney, from Darwin to Hobart, um, and to arrive in bookstores on the exact same day at around about the same time. So there would be no way that police could swoop in and seize all the copies and burn them and no one would ever see it. It was going to come on sale everywhere in the country at the same time um, and just be the most flagrant, audacious ban of, a, of, a, of the censorship system. So it was a kind of this massively defiant act. Um, and, of course, it happened. The book came out on 31 August 1970 right on the cusp of spring, fittingly, I think. It's a deeply provocative and intriguing way of doing it to try and overwhelm the system and provoke a response at the same time. But the booksellers were essential to this. I mean, they needed to get them on board and they needed to sell it in such a way that it was provocative in the right way. So how did they manage that? How was it actually sold on that day? 
it is right to say that the booksellers were crucial in this. Um, early attempts to publish and, and to you know fight against bans had failed because some booksellers didn't have the courage to risk court action and risk um, being charged and defending themselves and all those kinds of things. Um, Penguin's managing director, a man named John Mickey, um, a very, very famous man. Well, I, th- I think he should be more famous anyway. Um, a handsome guy, a very charismatic guy, brought booksellers on side principally by pointing out the um, immense opportunity that awaited them. And he kind of enlisted people who were like-minded to him. So the manager of Angus and Robertson was a man named Gordon Barton, who was a very unusual fellow in many respects, um, had some very weird sexual kinks. Fittingly, I I should add, for this kind of escapade. Um, But he was kind of really intent on publishing, playing a role in Australian culture, and he was intent on contributing to the kind of new dawn for, for Australia. Um, that seemed to promise in the 1960s and 70s. They managed to get the book out. Um, booksellers agreed to take shipments, and various ones of them were kind of aware of what they should be doing. So some of them sold them from underneath the counter. Some of them would sell copies uh, and keep a big stack off-site in case the police raided them. Um, others would take boxes and walk around university forecourts and sell them there. So it wasn't just kind of the mainstream establishment bookshops that were doing this. It was also the edgy left-wing ones that were doing it. The Communist Party bookshop, for example, um, Communist Party-owned bookshop in Perth was selling the copies. Um, Bob Gould's Third World bookshop had his couple of thousand copies actually in the basement of a nearby pub, and he would bring copies over in beer cartons so that the police, when they came, couldn't seize all of the copies. The police actually raided his store like two or three times, and each time they only got two or three copies, very few Um, And they were totally unaware of the 500 or so sitting in boxes of VB next door. Um, It's a a kind of – the booksellers were audacious and they were risking court action. And, of course, there was court action. There were trials. Hi, I'm DeLon Grant. And I'm Francesca Ramsey. And together we host the podcast Let Me Fix It. Each week we explore something from the past and then we pitch how to fix it for today. But forget about the past. Let's talk about the new show of the moment. DeLon, did you get a chance to watch the new Queenie trailer I sent you? How dare you send me this amazing (laughs) show that took me back to every messy breakup I've ever had. Thank God I had you through my 20s. Now, you could not pay me to go back and relive those days. But thankfully, we will be living as Queenie navigates her her messy 20s. The new series Queenie is now streaming on Hulu. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. And that was the whole point, was to provoke that response. 
so it's brought to court in a number of different states. Um, different booksellers are brought to court. And the defence lawyers are trying to argue that it had literary merit and therefore couldn't be banned. Um, and at the heart of the case in the courts, there seems to be this contest between obscenity and literary merit, that merit should, you know, supersede the obscenity. And how did that debate work out in the court? Well, it was an interesting one because it was also mitigated by this idea of who was going to get their hands on the book. Um, so in Victoria, where the first trial was held against Penguin, um, Penguin, on one hand, convinced the judge that the book had literary merit, but the judge was still of a mind that the book was obscene and that because the price point was so low, it was only $1.35, that it would be in the hands of school children and they'd be able to read it. So he found Penguin guilty, which meant the book was banned in Victoria. But then when we went over to Western Australia, where the next trial was held, a magistrate there decided that the relevant act, the wording of the act, was such that any book of literary merit, no matter its obscenity, no matter its ability to get into the hands of minors, that didn't matter. It was just the literary merit. And he was convinced that it had literary merit, so he allowed it to go free. The next trial that took place was over in New South Wales um, before a jury. For the first time, it went before a jury. And at that trial, one of the key issues was whether or not the book had been sold to a school child, a schoolgirl, um, in full view of the police officers who testified that a girl had been in front of them. She was 14 or so. She was wearing a school uniform. This was what the school uniform looked like. And she'd purchased the book. It was school holidays at the time. The police didn't know what school it was. And when they decided that they did know what school it was, they specified a uniform that wasn't in use at that time. That notwithstanding, um, the debate came down to, was the book obscene? Did it have literary merit? Uh, and, and, and was it available to kids? And of course, you know, as with the, any obscenity trials, literary experts came to testify. Um, and in all of the trials in Australia, this was no different. Authors from Patrick White, who would win the Nobel Prize in a few years' time, to the editors of the major newspapers, to non-fiction writers and journalists and scholars and academics – all turned out in force to testify um, for Portno's complaint and for the ability of Australians to read it. A man named Harry Hesseltine, who was a professor who turned up to, to testify in support of Portno's complaint, said later that that was your duty as an academic. You know, you're an English literature academic. You know what literature can and can't do. And in his view, this was a moment where you had to step forward and say, a book is not going to damage your morals. A book is not going to bring you down. Um, and for my part, I think he... he, he he quoted one of the most beautifully wise things in the trials. He said that, you know, to, a prosecutor was having a go at him and saying, Portnoy, Alexander Portnoy is a dirty little pervert. He's gross. He's foul. He's feral. Isn't he an awful little man? Uh, and Heseltine said, no. Um, and he quoted the Roman poet, the Roman dramatist Terence. He said that nothing that is human is alien to me. Uh, and what's even better is that he quoted it in the original Latin. And the prosecutor was like, ah. Uh, this cranky old police prosecutor, this nuggety old fella, and who just had no kind of reply to that. Um, so it was wonderful, this, this kind of moment where dirty-minded prosecutors and, and these surreal debates about masturbation, you know, grand robes and wigs, and they're standing in courtrooms arguing over whether or not masturbation is perversion or whether or not their kids masturbate and so on. It, it's, re it's just surreal kind of stuff. Yeah, so in effect, you had these long series of trials, nine in total, um, and some of them just ended in failure with, with the cases dismissed and 
magistrates desisting. Others ended with some very small fines. Um, others ended with wins for the publisher. But the effect was to leave the censorship system just in tatters. You had places where it was available, other places where it was banned. And the effect was that the federal government had to move. It eventually decided that Portnoy's complaint should be allowed into Australia. So it moved, removed the ban. Of course, this is a year and a half or so later. So, you know, only a little bit behind the, behind the line, Australia. And you argue in your book that the trials, while they were going on, sort of affected the rest of the censorship system, that the books that had been previously censored are starting to be released by the national board. Yeah. So one of the things that was really notable is that the censorship board began to remove bans on books by Henry Miller, for example, um, the band whose books were, you know, totemic kind of titles in the censorship struggles. But the board was stepping back and taking those bans off. Uh, at the same time, the board was also kind of not exercising its authority to ban more books at the same time, even though they're still around. Um, at the state level, moreover, the, the state courts were being clogged by the domestic censorship activists and publishers in Australia were becoming more emboldened. Um, one of the most salutary examples of that is the Angus and Robertson, who sold Portnoy's complaint in New South Wales and were charged for it, decided that they would publish Leonard Cohen's novel, Beautiful Losers, um, which had been banned in Australia since 1966. And one of the journalists said to the managing director of Angus and Robertson, um, you know, why are you doing this? You're going to risk prosecution. Do you think the governments will prosecute? And the managing director just said, no, not after Portnoy. Perfect example. They knew that the censorship system had just been assailed and beaten so handily. So even before they lost the court case, the effects of the the provocation had started to eat away at the foundations, really. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I mean, amid this, there was a new minister for, cent- for customs who was in charge of censorship. Uh, and he'd begun to liberalise the system, but he'd also brought on the first parliamentary debates around censorship in about 40 or so years. So there was this kind of liberalisation underway and the furor over Portnoy's complaint not only kept censorship in the headlines and in the public consciousness, but it fed into that public debate about who was in touch with the Australian people and who was not. Um, and, and it kind of did split along those party lines that I mentioned before. The Liberal Country Party government was kind of trying to hold the line desperately, and the Labor Party was pushing back on it and pushing on it and saying, "This, the line's already gone, you know, the debate's already over, you've lost. It sounds like publicity and controversy is really one of the most important reasons that the censorship system starts to erode. It is interesting how that provocative book and that action can create that. Is it true of the system in general that it was characterized by moments of, you know, outrage over certain things and then it just public interest dissipates? Because that seems to be how it worked in Ireland. I think that's absolutely true. That's I think that's exactly how it worked in Australia. For the most part, customs um, actions and, and censorship happened in secret. You know, this is clerks in back offices um, looking at something and deciding that it looks a bit seedy and so banning it, and, and that's it. So it's only really when big conflagrations and, and big publicity happens that the censorship system is forced to reassess and to step back a bit. Um, of course, the censorship system, as was its want, would have come back again and reassert itself and drive with more censorship. Uh, and this has happened over and over again. In 1958, there was one of the biggest overhauls of the banned list in Australia after Catcher in the Rye had been banned. Um, you know, the list of banned books was whittled right down 
But over the next couple of years, after that public attention had passed, after the glare of public attention had gone and shifted to something else, customs just went back to its work. They started banning James Bond. They banned um, Nabokov. They banned Baldwin. They were just back into it. They were like, hells yeah, let's go knuckle for leather. Let's get this. Let's stop the dirty books again. So it was absolutely important that publicity and the public be brought along with this. Um, and one of the most notable way, think, points about it is that the censorship system had to be changed almost at an electoral level as well. The governments actually needed to recognize that there was no longer uh, a consensus on this in the public and the, the, the parties themselves had begun to differ. So I think the public debate was really important to pushing um, the political issue to the fore. The court trials of domestic censorship activists, I thought, were really interesting in your book, because that's not something that we have here. The censorship is of publications and newspapers, and no one was ever brought to trial for, I don't know, wearing a sign or anything. But that is the case in the Australian system, isn't it? Yeah. So one of the biggest biggest activists, one of the most notable activists in Australia was a woman named Wendy Bacon who um, in the 1970s was a student at University of New South Wales. She was very young, 20, 22 or so. And she was the most ballsy woman I think I've ever met. Um, she's wonderful, beautiful woman, lovely. And But she had no time for the censorship system. As she saw it, the censorship system was holding back debate on a huge number of areas around sex, around discrimination, around abortion and contraception, all these areas. And so her thought was we need to take on the censorship system before we're going to have these bigger debates. And as she saw it, and I think quite perceptively, her argument was that the defense of literary merit that a publisher like Penguin was using was something of a distraction. It wasn't the real issue because that was something kind of elitist in some ways. There was a class dimension to literary merit as an idea um, in the sense that a book of nudes, because it was priced heavily and produced in leather, was you know somehow better than a dirty magazine available to the working class man. So her argument was, let's not try and defend anything on the basis of literary merit. Let's try and defend something on the basis of obscenity is obscenity and we should be free to use it. So she indulged in what are still very frank and very confronting um, words and expressions and things. Um, one of the most notable examples is a poem called Eskimo Nell, which she published in the university newspaper, Tarunka. Um, now, it's a staple of, of, of locker rooms and, and bars and things like that. Like, I heard it um, chanted and sung when I was out stomping the grounds, shall we say. Um, but it's it's quite a – so it's widely sung and widely known, but she put it into print. And, of course, that spurred prosecutions against the publisher. Um, the thing that happened, though, that, ba that Bacon did was continually clogging the courts by offending more and more and more. So she went outside the courtroom – um, for this particular publication after after Eskimo Nell, wearing a nun's habit that said on it, I have been fucked by God's steel prick. You know, the most offensive potential slogan you could think you could possibly stitch onto your habit. And she just had that right there in this sparkly kind of silver lettering. Um, it's it's this brazen, very brazen, unapologetic attack on the censorship system and daring the authorities to put her in court and she wouldn't cooperate. And over and over again, she did this and she embarrassed them. And they eventually just had to kind of drop the charges. They just didn't know what to do. They were throwing up their hands. And to some extent, she was able to shift, again, shift the debate onto, should we be able to talk about sex, frankly? And should we be able to talk about violence, frankly? 
one of the things that she did that I think is really notable is she protested the ban on a book called The Little Red School Book, which I'm sure you're familiar with. And you're listening. Oh, it was banned. Yes, obviously. <laughs> banned everywhere. Let everyone ban it. Terrible book. Um, actually, really quite a wonderful book, I think, in some ways. But she actually managed to get smuggle the book into Australia, print copies, and she was handing them out to school children for free. So you can imagine the kind of furor that was um, developing as she was doing this. But it was the most brazen kind of attack. And in tandem with Portnoy, at about the same time, it was hitting all these markers against the censorship system, the literary merit debates being taken on, the pornographic debates being taken on, the obscenity for obscenity's sake. You know, The censorship system was just reeling. They were punch drunk. They had no idea what they are doing anymore. Um, so it was very, very effective, and it continued to draw attention to censorship as an issue. Wendy Bacon sounds amazing. What a woman to wear to wear a nun's habit with a slogan like that on it. That's something else. <laughs> <laughs> and she's right, because the elitist argument, I think, plays out in Ireland after the late 60s, because they don't ban Portnoy's complaint, but they ban Jackie Collins, who is... Really oh, not rude at all, but of course is very widely read and is widely read by women, you know, whereas maybe Portnoy's complaint might be seen as literary and because it's about a man, there might be a belief that women wouldn't read it. So they're definitely censoring in gendered and class-based ways, even when the censorship system loosens up. So she was dead right. It's like, it doesn't matter if it's a good book or a crappy book. You should be allowed to say the word cock in it if you want. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's it's quite amazing, I think, to see just how challenging that viewpoint, though, was because the idea, the dominant idea in censorship in Australia was that the select few needed to protect the great unwashed. And this is why for so long censorship in Australia was directed toward the working classes. Books of, of, of realist literature or social that depicted socialist and fascist and anarchist thought in particular, you know, those books, the authorities here were kind of gobsmacked and terrified that the working class would get access to them and be inspired to overthrow them, be inspired to the revolution. So there was really this class dimension, um, and, and a gendered one and, and an ageist one as well. It's remarkable actually how complex the censorship system was and how far ranging it was. But Bacon, all of 22, 20, 22 years old, she's a wonderful, wonderful woman, wonderful woman. It reminded me of um, Sinead O'Connor on the television in 1992 when she ripped up the picture of the Pope. <laughs> and she got real pushback on that. You know, it was a real scandal and terribly controversial. And Irish people nearly fainted with the shock. But in the 60s, you're talking an Australian woman wearing a nun's habit that says, I got fucked by God's steel prick. I mean, that's a whole other level of project. <laughs> but I have to ask, as an Irish person doing an Irish a podcast about Ireland, sort of ish, mostly, I have to ask that Irish abroad question. Because you described the customs department in your book, you said there were a lot of Irish Catholics working as clerks. And the prosecutors in some of the cases, and the defence also in the trials, have Irish Catholic backgrounds. And that really fits in nicely with our self-image of, you know, sexually repressed, censorious killjoys. But is it fair <laughs> to say that the Irish in Australia were more pro-censorship? Or is there anything you can say like that about the different groups within Australian society? It's definitely true that, uh, that Catholics, Irish Catholics, made up the vast majority of clerks within the customs department. 
um, and also the vast majority of cops in the police departments. So that's certainly true. But it's worth saying that the, the heads of departments that were tasked with enforcing censorship were generally of, a, of an English kind of heritage. Um, so they were Protestant generally, um, and they weren't, I think, exercised so much by that Catholic kind of Puritanism. They were of a kind of view that was that just that traditional hierarchical, patriarchal, English, Anglican kind of outlook. So the Robert Garron, who, who was really quite, I think, in many ways, the most formidable force behind censorship in Australia, he was Solicitor General, he was uh, head of the Re- Literature Review Board for a long time. He was, you know, he was not Irish. So no, the, the Irish Catholics really exercised their authority and their work, mostly at that lower level in the customs department, where they could see a book in the airport and ban it straight out. But of course, they were the ranks of the prosecution in, in many of these trials were Irish. Len Flanagan in Victoria was a notable Irish Catholic. Um, in, in Sydney, um, Jack Kenny was, of course, Catholic and Irish. Um, but, of course, his opposing counsel, William Dean, was Irish Catholic and made a joke about it at the trial. In fact, he said, you know, you're getting a, an Irish Catholic to defend this book. That's a win for you straight away. <laughs> So he could use our reputation to uh, advance his cause in that case. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think one of the most notable things I found surprising in, in, in doing this book was that censorship was the support for censorship right through the trials, right through what Wendy Bacon was doing, was actually measured by polls as a majority in the community. Most people in Australia wanted censorship to stay or increase even more. They wanted more censorship. So it, it's quite bizarre to think that this this small this minority would have to be seen as a minority of anti-censorship activists were nonetheless able to turn the table so effectively. But of course, that when they did, the table was turned so quickly and so effectively that the debate just moved on without a second thought. Um, by 1975, politicians were talking about printed material. They were just like, we don't care about printed material anymore. We don't care about magazines. We're now we have now have problems with movies. You know, that's what we're focusing on. That's what we need to censor. Um, the debate was settled uh, with Portnoy and with Wendy Bacon. So there wasn't film censorship before that, or was it just very minor? Oh, no, there absolutely was film censorship before that. Um, the, the, the issue with, with film censorship, though, is, of course, that it's harder to kind of – it's easier to, to censor and not for it to be so well known. You can just take a few frames out and – you know, they won't be necessarily so well known. One of the theories that, that's been put to me and that I kind of think is, is perhaps right is the idea that big money Hollywood was coming into Australia and saying to our politicians, loosen things up a bit. We need some more. We need some, we need to show a bit more skin in these movies. And the politicians were inclined to start thinking about it. We did have film censorship, but the debate just moved straight on to film censorship after Portnoy. People just stopped caring about books. Um, and to this day, you know, books very rarely attract the attention and suggestion of censorship. The American Psycho is the notable example, a notable exception to that, of course. It's still sold in shrink wrap in Australia. It still has an R18 plus classification on it when you buy it. Really? Yeah, yeah. It's a bit bizarre, that one. But And, and a couple of years ago, actually, a bookseller in Adelaide um, had police visit him because he was selling um, American Psycho without the shrink wrap. We've still got some censorship. The debate's not all over, but it's yeah, largely moved on. That's just fascinating because there are no bans in place for anything 
worth talking about now in a literary sense for us. That's over. But I mean, one of the last and the most funniest, in my opinion, ones that they banned was uh, Madonna's 1992 book, Sex, was banned in Ireland. The coffee table book. Yeah, I've heard of that. Great book. (laughs) It was on sale for a few months before they banned it, because I remember seeing it, because it was um, wrapped up in a foil package, obviously. (laughs) And uh, I distinctly remember seeing it. But then it was banned and nobody, nobody blinked an eye. Nobody protested. Everyone just said, hey, uh, nudie Madonna pics, who cares, you know? (laughs) But thank you so much, Patrick. That's been just amazing. I love Wendy Bacon and I love all of the cast of characters who worked so hard to chip away at the censorship system and that they were successful is just an incredible tribute to them. I think they're they're heroes in many ways. John Mickey, John Hooker, Peter Froelich, the guys who led Penguin and, and all the people who supported them and defended them and turned out to, to support them. Um, they're heroes in Australia, I think, and should be better known. So thank you for having me on, Eva. It's been wonderful to talk to you. Thank you. That was a fun romp through book banning in Australia, a country once described as the Ireland of the South Seas in censorship terms. I didn't need to do censorship bingo for Portnoy's complaint because the Australian censors wrote actual reports on the books they read. But out of nosiness, I tested Roth's book in Rude Bits Bingo and it scored 16 out of 25. It's the highest score so far, but it wasn't banned. Proof that literary censorship really is nonsense. Next episode, I'm talking about a sex manual. The Joy of Sex, A Gourmet Guide to Lovemaking, was published in 1972 and banned in Ireland two years later. It's infamous for its explicit pen drawings of a very hairy man and a slightly less hairy woman. But the story of its circulation in Ireland is as convoluted as some of the positions recommended in the book. In the meantime, I'm going to do my best not to think about fellas who wank into raw liver. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>